0: Today, we're starting in Mark's Gospel, uh, and it's following our mission theme. You would have seen on our slides from before, as Michelle gave the announcement. uh, What we're seeking to do through mission is uncover Jesus. And we're going to do that through Mark's Gospel Uh, and to orient ourselves to the space, because we'll be doing this kind of in small groups, um, in our mission events, hopefully one on one as you invite your non-Christian friends to read Mark and cover with you. We're also going to do it in public meeting. Uh, And the reasoning behind that is we just want you to be so familiar with Mark's gospel that when it comes to sitting down and actually reading it with somebody, you're like, okay, you know what, I I think I can do this, okay? Uh, And so that familiarity is something that we really want to drive into you. And to do that, obviously, then we need to get some of the vital statistics down. uh, And that means the structure of Mark. Uh, Now, some of you will recognise this from the toolboxes that we've been doing in small groups But with Mark's gospel, you can really break it down into two key sections with a prologue. Now, the prologue is today's passage. uh, And then basically from chapters one to eight, you see the identity of Jesus come to the fore. Uh, Peter confesses that he is the Christ. And that's the turning point to kind of segue into the second section, which is all about Jesus' mission. Now that we know who he is, what is he here to do? But to understand both those sections, the main bulk of Mark, we need to understand what happens in the prologue, because the prologue, as you can see written up there, kind of gives us the categories and the ideas and the ways of thinking to help us understand what comes afterwards so essentially what it is it's 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 a previously on for the bible now i found out from tuesday they they mocked me mercilessly i thought i was out of touch it turns out that i was but in the wrong way you guys still have that i wondered whether netflix binges meant that you no longer had previously on anything but you've still got it so you understand this concept yeah so think of your favorite tv show it's always season three and four that's the best season right but you can't start there that's the peak, that's the climax, that's the thing you want to enjoy the most. But unless you're there at season one and two and three, you can't enjoy the, the kind of the, the, the peak of, of that particular show. And that's what we're seeing here in Mark. Mark is trying to bring us up to speed and give us the previously on. These were the last seasons, the things that we need to know, who kissed who, who dated who, um, so that we can properly appreciate what we're going to see for the rest of Mark. And so today is scene setting. What we want to do is we just want to get all of those categories in place so that when we start to study it, read it with our friends, we know what the highlights are and the key things to hit up. Now, like I said before, it's going to be dense. Uh, Let me give you a bit of a preview. Uh, This is a picture of my Bible. I've whited out some of it. Hopefully I won't get in trouble for that. But you'll see there a whole bunch of references in red to the Old Testament, This isn't all of them. These are just the main ones. Got to a point where I was just like, it's sort of pointless to do more than these ones. But, you know, this kind of gives you an idea of just how much previously on there was before we get to Mark's gospel. Uh, And so what we're going to do is we're going to try and hit up most of these today. So buckle up. You ready? Cool. Well, the way that we're going to do this, we're going to do it in three parts. And they're there on your outline. We're going to look at the Messiah's messenger We're then going to look at the Messiah's commissioning and then finally the Messiah's message. Uh, Pick it up. Let's have a look at verse one of our passage today. The beginning of the gospel about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. Uh, And I want you to notice straight from the bat that he begins his gospel about Jesus, not with Jesus. He begins with the messenger that comes before him. So if you're there and you look in verse 2, he continues and he says, As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And so what does Mark say at the very beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Well, to understand the Messiah, you need to understand the messenger The messenger comes before, he clears the path for the Messiah in much the same way that the police might kind of clear the path for a limousine of a VIP as they kind of cruise in to their gold-encrusted compound. So this is the sort of thing that we're thinking about when we see the messenger. Uh, And the way to understand the messenger is really to understand this quote from Isaiah in verses 2 and 3, which for those of you who, who, who may already know, maybe that you don't, that one quote is actually three quotes. Uh, three Old Testament references. You see them there up on the screen. And what we're going to do to understand this messenger is to go into each one of them, okay? So let's start with the first quote. Uh, It's up there on the screen. This is Exodus 23, verse 20. Uh, And it simply says this, See, I am sending an angel ahead of you to guard you along the way and to bring you to the place I have prepared. Uh, Essentially, what's happening is that Israel has just been uh, pulled out of Egypt by God's power They're heading to the promised land and God provides them an angel to guide them. Now, that word angel can be translated messenger as well. So really, it's context that determines it, which is why in Mark chapter one, uh, we see it's that God sends a messenger ahead of him. Uh, But the significance of this quote, I think, is the next verse that comes after it. He says, pay attention to him and listen to what he says. Do not rebel against him. He will not forgive your rebellion, since my name is in him. If you listen carefully to what he says and do all that I say, I will be an enemy to your enemies and will oppose those who oppose you. And then you'll be brought into the land. And so, what this tells us is that the messenger is somebody who we need to pay attention to. Now, fun fact, we kind of get inception-level degrees of quotation here in the Old Testament. Malachi chapter 3, which is our second quote, riffs off this and kind of almost quotes it verbatim and pulls it up. We'll come back to that one in a second. Um, For this one, you're probably going to need to flip over to Malachi. So if you've got your Bibles, it's only a couple of books um, before Mark. It's the last book in the Old Testament, uh, and that's not insignificant for where we're heading. Um, So as you pull it open... Uh, you'll see that um, malachi chapter 3 is not actually the very beginning of the section it begins in chapter 2 verse 17 and i'm going to read that out for us and then we're going to hit into chapter 3 verse 1 where our quote is okay so let's see what happens malachi says to the israelites you have wearied the lord with your words how have we wearied him you ask Well, by saying this, all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord and he is pleased with them, or where is the God of justice? It's a pretty gutsy call from Israel, yeah? This is the God who's defended them, cared for them throughout their generations and they're saying that he thinks evil is good and he's not doing anything to help anybody. And so God responds, verse 1, this is our quote, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. Now, notice there who the messenger prepares the way for. It's not Israel. It's not the Messiah. It's actually God himself. What's he bringing? Have a look. He's bringing justice. And you would think that that's a good thing, right? But for Israel, it's sort of a double edged sword, because if you look then in the next verse in verse two, it says, but who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? And the reason that Malachi says this uh, is because Israel has consistently turned away from God and failed to keep his decrees. And so as the rest of Malachi plays out, the warning to Israel is to return to the Lord before he comes to you, because if that happens, he will judge you. And so if you skim your eyes down, if you've got it open in front of you to chapter 4, verse 1, you will see uh, that the day of the Lord will come and it will burn like a furnace. So there's this edge of fear here. But because God is merciful, chapter 4, verse 5, the last verse in the Old Testament, it's up here on the screen for you just so that you can really spot it. Despite the fact that there is a hard warning there, God is merciful and he says this. See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents, or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. And so this messenger who precedes the Lord's coming when he comes in judgment is also the means by which God will spare his people. He's sort of like the warning light that kind of comes before the ship cruises through the harbour. Um, It's basically to tell them, get up, gird your loins, God's coming, so get right with him. Now, if this is all getting a bit complicated, that's okay. We're going to tie it all together in just one moment, but let's go to the third and final quotation. And this one is from Isaiah. So if you've got your Bibles, uh, you can open it up to Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. Isaiah 40, verse 3. Um, I'm also going to whack it up there on the slide because I want to have mercy on you like God had mercy on all of us. Um, but this exercise of finding it in the scriptures is not an unimportant one, which is why I'm glad to hear pages flipping. Uh, This is what uh, Isaiah says. I'm going to start from the beginning of the chapter. This is the turning point in the book of Isaiah. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins as we saw in malachi one of the big problems that israel had was their sin they don't obey the god who loves them who brought them out of the land of slavery and so what does god do well because he's just because he's true to his promises he punishes them by sending them into a foreign nation he exiles them and Isaiah writes this just as they've been told that babylon's coming to get them and what god says is that after that time there will come a point where he will proclaim comfort to them, where their sins, their punishment, will finally be done. And that leads us to verse 3, which is our quote. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. So in other words, when you hear the voice of the messenger, we can know that God is coming to his people and he is bringing comfort and he is bringing restoration. Now, have a think about that. That's how previously on, at least at the very initial part of it. This is the thing that Israel has been waiting for for at least 400 years. They have been languishing under foreign rule, living in a land that is theirs, but it hasn't really been theirs. Things just haven't hummed, it hasn't prospered. It's like life is in black and white rather than colour. And the thing that they have been told repeatedly by the prophets particularly by Isaiah, Mark says, is that one day God is coming and he is going to rescue you, comfort you, restore you. But that day has an edge, a hint of danger, uh, which is judgment. So be ready for when it comes. And so the Israel mindset, it has been waiting for the Lord to come. That's the thing that they're hoping for. So when we get back to Mark and we see him begin his gospel, what is the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God? Why does he use these quotations? Well, he's tapping into this expectation of God's return when restoration of relationship and land and blessing will occur. And we know that that day will come because he will send a messenger ahead of him, the eschatological Elijah that we saw in Malachi chapter 4, the one who would come and prepare the way i think that raises for us two questions who is the messenger we need to know who he is if we know when the lord's coming Uh, and we also need to know how he prepares the way those are our two questions for the last bit of this section let's kind of punch through it back in mark chapter one verse four we see the quote and then instantly what do we see after and so john the baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching so here's our voice crying out in the wilderness Mark is identifying him as the messenger. Now, if you want proof of that, you can skim your eyes down to verse six. Uh, we see a little bit of a fashion parade. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist. Why is that important? Well, there's one other place in the Bible where we've seen that particular outfit. It's in 2 Kings chapter 1, verse eight. And it was what the first Elijah wore. So do you see what Mark is doing here? He's telling us that John is the messenger. The eschatological Elijah promised in Malachi, the one who would turn the hearts of Israel back to God. It is finally here after all that waiting. And what's John doing? Well, he's preparing the way. How does he do it? He's preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And what's happening? Well, verse 5, the whole Judean countryside and all of Jerusalem are going out to him and confessing their sins. And that answers our second question. How does he prepare the way for the Lord? How do you prepare for God's coming? Well, you repent. You acknowledge your sins because if you don't, his coming will not bring the comfort that you have hoped for. Instead, it will bring catastrophe. So that's the messenger. What about the Messiah? Who is he? Well, John talks a bit about him there in verses 7 to 8. Uh, he says that there is one coming after him who is more powerful than him. And then without further preamble, what we see in the next verses in verse 9 is that at that time, Jesus came from Nazareth into Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. So here is the Messiah, Jesus. And what we see in verses 9 to 13, the next section of this prologue, is effectively the commissioning of the Messiah as he is prepared for his public ministry in Israel. And there are three elements to that commissioning. First of all, he's identified. Um, Have a look there at verse 10. See what it says. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love, with you I am well pleased. Now in John's gospel, different gospel to Mark, we're told that God had told John the Baptist that he would know who the Messiah was based on who he baptized. So he just baptized everyone. And as soon as he saw the spirit descend on a certain person, he knew that that would be the Messiah. Uh, We're not told that in Mark's gospel. In fact, the thing that helps us identify the Messiah is not John here, but the voice that comes from heaven. Now that voice is God's voice, specifically God the Father. We know that both because of where it comes from, it comes from heaven, and because of what the voice says. You guys ready for another romp in the Old Testament? because we've got another three quotes to chase down. Verse 11, the thing that the voice from heaven says is actually three Old Testament references as well. Okay, and the first one is Psalm 2. This one is definitely worth opening up if you've got a Bible in front of you. I don't think that I can think of any other passage in the Old Testament uh, that more clearly and succinctly outlines God's plan for the world um, through his Messiah. So Psalm chapter 2, and once you've got it open... Uh, we'll punch through. Uh, looking at verse 1, the thing that you'll notice is that the Psalm starts with the nations and kings uh, plotting against the Lord and his anointed. They want to throw off the shackles of God's oppression. Uh, it sounds pretty scary. This is a global coalition. We have never had that in the history of all of our world, really. A whole bunch of nations wanting to cooperate with one another. And yet, even though that seems scary, we see in verse 4 the one enthroned in heaven, that is God, laughs. He just kind of mocks them as though, you know, what they were doing is, whoa, scary guys. Maybe come up with something a little bit more confronting. And the reason he laughs is because of verse 6. He says, I've installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. And this is where we see the quote from Mark. This is verse 7. I'll proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. So here's God's chosen king declared to be his son. Now, remember, in the scriptures, particularly in the Old Testament, the son of God does not mean God, the son, the second member of the Trinity, The son of God means the son of David, the Messiah, the one whom God had promised would sit on David's throne and rule the world forever. So son of God equals Messiah. That's what we're kind of talking about here. And so when God says back in chapter one of Mark that Jesus is his son, he's not just describing a relationship of affection, not even a relationship of kind of like formal adoption. What he's describing here is a unique relationship that he would have with no one else Because the Son was the person through whom God would achieve his purposes in the world. Through him, he would quell the rebellion of the nations and establish his everlasting rule over all of his creation. And that has some implications, I think, for how we perceive Jesus. Because if you keep looking down Psalm 2 to verse 10, you'll see a warning. It says this, Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth." Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss the sun, or he will be angry and your way will lead to your destruction. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed to all who take refuge in him. So essentially Psalm 2, it gives us two choices. You either embrace the son and find a refuge in him as he brings about the rule of God in the world. Or you can ignore him cease and not fear him and you will be destroyed so that's psalm 2 we're only a third of the way there but that was the big one so sit tight we're getting there we're doing well we're doing well Uh, second reference is in isaiah 42 verse 1 i've been nice to you here i put it up on the screen now isaiah chapter 42 uh, this is what it says here is my servant whom i uphold my chosen one in whom i delight so there's the allusion it's not a direct quote I'll put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. Now, I want you to notice here there is a significant change. We're not talking about the son anymore. We're talking about a servant. And that's a bit uh, interesting. It's also really significant because in Isaiah, the mysterious servant was going to be God's agent to restore justice to the world. Now, the Jews in kind of Jewish history and thinking thought they were two separate people, right? Because in the Old Testament, the son was like this victorious king. But, but in the Old Testament, the servant was like this humiliated sufferer who just kind of got kicked around like a sack of potatoes or something like that. And for those of us who are familiar with Isaiah 53, 6, uh, you will know that the... Ser- is a cheap laugh. It worked on Tuesday, too. You guys really shouldn't encourage me in this, OK? I'm sorry, but... You will know that the servant becomes the substitute who suffers for the sins of Israel. And here at Jesus' baptism, for the first time, we see the son and the servant brought together. And so even in Mark chapter 1, we're starting to get hints, not just of what the Messiah will do, bring justice, but how he will do it through suffering that's confirmed to us in our third passage. Again, it's an allusion, not a quote. It's in Genesis 22, verse 2. Uh, some of you will remember this story. We had a great talk on it by Ben uh, last year. Worthwhile finding it on the website. Uh, it says this, Then God said, this is to Abraham, Take your son, your only son, whom you love. So there's the beloved reference, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah, sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain that I will show you. Now, for those of you who know the story, Abraham is faithful to God's command. He takes his son up to the mountain. But at the last moment, God provides a ram to take his place. And the ram acts as a substitute for his beloved son. So stepping back, getting all the bricks together, because they are bricks, putting all together, what do we see? Well, what we're seeing here is that the voice from heaven, God himself, is declaring that Jesus is not only the victorious son of God, but also the suffering servant. And in that joint office, he will restore the fortunes of Israel and bring justice to the nations. And there are hints that he will do it through sacrifice and substitution. That's a lot in one little sentence, isn't it? And yet this is the density. This is the kind of three seasons that leads up to the climax of the scripture's story. So we see the Messiah identified. Two more things, anointed and sent. They're much quicker. So you can take a breather. Let's see how we go here. Um, verse 10 you would have noticed this is back in mark chapter 1 that the spirit descends on him like a dove now that's not just like a nice kind of kind of movie scene where this nice bright white thing kind of flaps down there's a there's a purpose for this what is the significance of the spirit well remember back to Isaiah 42 verse 1 how is the spirit empowered to bring justice to the nations and God puts his spirit on him doesn't he Now elsewhere in Isaiah, in chapter 11, verse 2, we see that the spirit of the Lord will rest upon God's the God's Messiah. And that spirit will give him wisdom and understanding and the proper fear and knowledge to judge the world with righteousness. He'll uphold the poor and the oppressed. He'll push down the wicked and the oppressors. And like Psalm 2, he will strike them down with the rod of his mouth because they refuse to live under his rule. And the significance, I think, of the Spirit falling upon Jesus is that God the Father, by his Spirit, is empowering his Son for this great work of deliverance and judgment. So not only is he being identified here in the baptism, but he is being prepared for the thing that he has been set aside to do. So he's God-identified, he's God-anointed, and third of all, he is God-sent. Have a look at verse 12. Uh, We see a much bigger description of this in Matthew's gospel. Here we only get two verses, 12 and 13. Uh, We're told that as soon as he's baptized, the spirit sends him out, literally drives him out. He kind of just throws him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals and angels attended him. Now, what's going on here? Well, the number 40, I don't know whether you're familiar with the number 40. Have you seen it in the Old Testament before? Uh, It's in the New Testament as well. It's actually a really important number in Scripture. It's the number of incubation um, or refinement. It's sort of how long it takes to make something ready. So we have the nine months in the womb. Well, we have the 40-somethings in the Scripture. And we see it all over the place. We see it in the life of Noah, the 40 days and nights of rain. We see it in Moses. We see it in Elijah. But, But the obvious allusion here that's being made is to the nation of Israel and their 40 years in the wilderness. Uh, that's how long it took them to get from Egypt to the promised land. Uh, now, what's the issue with that? Well, it's, it's not because, you know, it's as they were slow walkers um, or they just kind of got lost or whatever it was. Um, at an average walking pace over a course of 40 years, you can actually walk to the moon and back twice. So, so that wasn't the issue. Well, why, why did it take them 40 years? Well, it's because they had rebelled against the Lord. They had failed to trust him And the wilderness, in the place of testing, they had hardened their hearts. And so 40 years was how long it took for every member of that rebellious generation to die out before God would let his people enter the promised land. And the key to get here is that in contrast to Israel, Jesus, having been sent into the wilderness by the Spirit to be tested by Satan, did not fail. Israel was actually supposed to be the servant of the Lord. They were supposed to be the beacon by which all the other nations would come towards. They were going to be the ones that brought blessing and justice to the world. But they disobeyed God and they failed in their commission. But in the wilderness, Jesus succeeds. So the Messiah is identified. He's anointed and he's sent. He is now appropriately commissioned to go out and bring about the justice and the comfort that Israel has been waiting for. So long. Seasons 1 to 3, let's hit up season 4 uh, in point 3. Should have worked those numbers a bit better, hey. Um, the Messiah's message, verses 14 and 15. Because I think this is where everything kind of tumbles into place for us. All of that category work, all of that slog through the Old Testament, that massive kind of sledgehammer to the head again and again, this is where we see the payoff. Verse 14 John is put in prison. And having prepared the way for the Messiah, he kind of recedes into the background of the story. And Jesus emerges out of the wilderness, proclaiming the good news of God. He says there in verse 15, The time has come, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. That's a really significant statement. Uh, If you've been around Christianity for any length of time, that statement might come as a surprise to you, right? It's got those Christian buzzwords, repent and believe, but there's no reference to Jesus. There's no reference to God's love or his grace or Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross or even his glorious resurrection and the promise of new life. So all of these things that we're expecting kind of be in this message of the Messiah, we just don't see them. Now, you might kind of say, kind of Matt, well, you know, this is the beginning of the gospel. Just give Jesus a bit of time. Come on, just calm down. Um, it's just the beginning of his public ministry. There's more to be said and there's more to be done. And you would be right if you said that. But, but don't miss the significance of Jesus' first words. Because first words matter. Entire articles are devoted to how to start a book or craft the first line of a speech. Because how you start is how you finish, right? Uh, and here, what are Jesus' first words? Well, it's not a declaration of grace. It's not a declaration of death and resurrection it's a declaration of the coming of the kingdom of god you see in order to understand the christian gospel the message that does contain the declaration of god's love and his grace and jesus death and the promise of new life and and all those things we need to first understand that it is a message about a kingdom because it is through this kingdom that god will bring about the comfort of his people and justice to the nations but this kingdom it's not like any other kingdom we know of because it's not primarily political one day it will be one day jesus will come and claim everything Uh, the jews certainly thought it was in the first instance though and they were wrong because this kingdom is fundamentally first and foremost spiritual the enemies of the kingdom are not the persians or the greeks or the romans or anyone else who had subjugated the israelites in the last kind of 400 years no the enemy of the kingdom were those who sin by refusing to submit to the rule of God and his king. And the way that you receive the king and you enter that kingdom is not to kind of get a passport, not to kind of take up arms, but it was to repent of that sin, to actually put yourself back under the rule of the king, receive his mercy and pardon, and then conform your life to his rule. And once you understand, I think, that the shape of the gospel is a kingdom shape, And the nature of that kingdom is spiritual, that it's not divided along lines of race or class, but it superimposes over everything, then I think by necessity that changes the way that you view the world. Christianity is not just one valid option amongst a smorgasbord of codes and beliefs to live by, it is a declaration that God has named his king who will receive the nations, the entirety of our world, as an inheritance. Not merely Israel, but Greece and Rome and China and America and Australia. And he will do to them all as they have done to him. For those who have rebelled, he will bring catastrophe. He'll dash them to pieces. But for those who repent, he will bring comfort. The good news, the Christian gospel, the peak, season four. The news that your sins are paid for that you no longer need to stand under the judgment of the king, but instead can live under the blessing of his rule forever. And that you can come to him and instead of receive punishment, you receive pardon. And this is Mark's purpose in these first dense 15 verses. It's to show us what Jesus declares to us here, that the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God has come near, and that it's time to choose a side. And so will you choose the king and his comfort or will you choose catastrophe? See, as the weeks unfold this semester, we're going to progressively uncover Jesus, God's King, who he is, what he's about. And we're going to spend more time thinking not just about God's King, but his kingdom, what it's like, how we enter it, how we live in it. But for now, it's enough to know that the category is kingdom. Uh, and that's especially important for us as we begin mission next week, isn't it? As we think about what it is to share the news of Jesus with the world, with our friends. It's not merely just that, you know, God does nice things for you and make your life better, but that God has put his king on the throne and that demands a response. And the good thing about it is that if you ally yourself with the king, it is the best thing that you could ever possibly do or imagine. The greatest news, the most foundational joy we can experience